If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians. No, you don't do that. That's what I did last week. Let's go to Isaiah. Who knows what's going to happen now? Can't even get the can't even get the Bible verse right. Isaiah 53. We're heading into the holiday season full gear now. We are Christians in a world that has a shot in the next few weeks of actually looking at Jesus because there's a, a little more attention on Jesus. Maybe not as much as some of you have experienced in years go by, but there's a, there's a tenderness toward things that are good. And so this is an opportunity for us to be great Christians over the next few weeks by making a big deal out of Jesus. And this morning what I want us to do is to begin looking over the next a month or so at this picture of Jesus that seems very peculiar to people outside of our church. There are people who are very skeptical about Jesus Christ. They don't quite understand who he is. And really for us as believers, the story is a little bit peculiar. And so what we're going to do in the weeks to come is we're going to look at this notion of Jesus as king. We're going to look at this concept of Jesus as King, and we're going to look at the peculiar aspects of our King, the things that even we have to think through and pray through and have faith in. And so this morning, we're looking at the birth of Jesus in a whole new set of eyes, and we're looking at the fact that Jesus was born to die. But let's pray before we do that. Father, we thank you that you are still giving and forgiving. That your grace did not stop this morning. That it was brand new. Your mercies and your compassions, they began all over again today. And so we ask for help. Help that we would be able to see your Son. Help that we would be able to know your Son. Help that we would be able to believe in your Son deeply and passionately. And help that we will be able to follow your Son, because He is the King. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. What were you doing 700 years ago? I mean, unless you have amazingly perfect daily vitamins. You were not around 700 years ago. You did not exist. Now, let me flip that a little bit on you. What will you be doing 700 years from now? Just chew on that, you know, just for a minute. And think of it practically. Will your retirement plan be managing your money in such a way that you can catch up on your hobbies and, and take those travel plans 700 years from now? Will your house be gaining equity for you 700 years from now? Will you be buying Christmas presents for your children and your grandchildren 700 years from now? I know. Pastor Scrooge is back again this Sunday. All the bad stuff, all the bad news, all the discouraging things. Well, I promise I don't want to discourage you this morning. I don't want to depress you. I don't want to bring you down. In fact, I want to do the opposite. I want to encourage you, and I want to build your joy and your confidence. 
Not your joy and your confidence in you, not your joy and your confidence in your retirement plan or in the equity in your house or in presence or even in your family and your friends. But joy and confidence in something that is greater, something that is real and something that is lasting. And why is it important to have that kind of joy, to have that kind of confidence? Well, part of the reason why is because December 26 is an actual day on the calendar. You see, we are just beginning the, the hustle and the bustle of the holiday time, the hustle and bustle of Christmas, but that time will come to an end. Christmas will be gone, and the, and the happy feelings and the, the happy giving feelings just don't feel the same on, on January 8th or on May 5th or on August 22nd. You see, things change. In other words, if we put our confidence in the retirement plan, if we put our confidence in our equity, if we put our confidence just in family or friends or presents or, or any other resources of this life, we are putting confidence in something that is not real and not lasting. In fact, what we're doing is we're putting all of our confidence in things that actually cannot impact our souls, at least not in a lasting and eternal way. And do you know why? Well, it's because holidays end. Bad things happen. Jobs are lost. Economies struggle. School gets harder. Someone that we love leaves this world. Marriages implode. Children rebel. And sickness invades our bodies. Life is tough and life is hard and, and life is difficult. And bad things happen. I know. Again, golly, Dow, come on. Sunday, I came here to be encouraged. I ordered the sweet and sour sermon with the fried rice and you left out the sweet and you burnt my rice. Come on. I'll agree. It's not warm. It's not fluffy. It's not something that gives us the fuzzies. But it's true, is it not? That life is tough and life is hard and life is full of uncertain things and life is full of change. So we need something sure. We need something solid. We need something that's greater than the world around us. We need something to put our confidence in that goes beyond who we are or, or what we do or what kind of people we're connected with. We need something greater. And in His love and in His kindness and in His grace and in His strength and in His justice, God has provided something greater. See, God has provided the source of safety and, and security, of stability for a life that changes every millisecond. God has provided a, a place that is real and satisfying, somewhere that you can deposit all of your confidence and all of your joy. What kind of place is that? Where is this something that's greater? What is this source of stability? Where is this place of confidence? Well, let's find out. Look with me at Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? A little more than 2,000 years ago, God invaded the world with something sure and something stable. Something that we can put our confidence in. He invaded the world with something greater than anything else that has ever been in the world and will ever be in the world. 
And that sure, solid, greater something is actually a someone, and that someone is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate source of joy. Jesus is the ultimate source of confidence, of stability, of satisfaction. One night, God invaded the world with Jesus. And the ultimate source of joy, the ultimate source of of confidence came into this world through a teenage girl in a stable and rockabye babied in a feeding trough. I mean, sure. I mean, that's how we would have done it, right? I mean, that's, that's total sense to us, right? There really is nothing about the birth of Jesus that makes any logical sense to us. You have the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Lord, the King, and the stable, and the feeding trough. I mean, these things just don't seem to go together. How in the world can we make sense of something that doesn't seem very logical? Well, the Old Testament has more than 300 prophecies, very specific prophecies about Jesus Christ, and every single one of them came true. Every one. 56 years ago, a book called Science Speaks was published by Peter Stoner. Stoner was a college math professor, and he figured that the probability of just eight of the prophecies about Jesus coming true was one in ten to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros beside it. And for those of us who didn't get very far past long division, Stoner gave us a much more helpful picture than all of those numbers. Imagine that you take a silver dollar and you make a mark on that silver dollar. And then you take that silver dollar and you put it out with a lot more silver dollars. Enough silver dollars to stack two feet deep across the entire state of Texas. That's a lot of silver dollars. And then you blindfold a man and you tell that man to go out into that two feet deep, Texas-wide, full of silver dollars and have him go pick out one. And this is what Stoner says. His chances of picking the marked silver dollar are the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing just eight prophecies apart from divine inspiration and having them all come true in one man. In other words, the chances of any of this Christmas story happening are more than slim and none. It's it's virtually impossible that these things would come true. And so it may not make a lot of logical sense to us, but it happened. And it happened just as God planned. Let's just look at, at two of those prophecies. Just two. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. 700 years after this prophecy was made, do you know what happened? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Here's another one, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
500 years later, after this prophecy, you know what happened? Jesus went riding in on a donkey on his way to the cross. That's just two of more than 300 prophecies that were very specific about Jesus that have all come true. And then we come to this one this morning. Isaiah, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah had a message about Jesus. His message was one of the 300 messages about Jesus, one of the 300 prophecies. But the people did not believe. Isaiah told the story, he gave the message, but the people would not believe. Our culture, especially where we live here in the South, is saturated with religion. There are hundreds of churches within just a a few miles of where we're sitting right now. Every city has multiple religious bookstores now. There are thousands and thousands of religious websites that you can go on and, and find out information on religion. I even read once about an agnostic that started a online call-in prayer line business. He didn't believe that there was a God. He wasn't really sure if there was a God, but he knew he could make money on God. He knew there was money to be made in religion. So God invades the world with Jesus. He comes into a time where he's ushering salvation into the world. And where does he choose to put him? Where does he choose to bring salvation into the world when he brings it into a place saturated with religion the world that jesus was born into was saturated with religion in fact most of the world around jesus was were people who professed to know god there was a lot of religious activity there was a lot of activity for god and that was the world that jesus was born into and how did all these religious people how did all of god's people Respond to the Messiah in their midst. John chapter 1 says this, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. The divine power and authority of the living God showed up in a manger in Bethlehem, and the people said, No, we won't believe. And they said it 700 years before, too. No, we're not going to believe. The divine power and authority of God showed up in a manger in Bethlehem, and the people said, we will not believe the divine power and authority of God. They would not believe the message about Bethlehem. And what was going to happen after Bethlehem? Look back at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Imagine a big old oak tree by the river. Man, it's strong. It's mighty. You you might take a picture of it. You might go have a, a picnic under the shade of that big old tree. Now I want you to imagine a little mustard plant out in the desert. It just sprung up. It's just out there. You you, you barely see it if you're walking out there. You might even step on it because you didn't even know it was out there in the ground. God tells Isaiah to write that the Messiah was going to be more like a mustard plant. Weak, 
and insignificant. Just a, just a tender little plant out in dry ground. I don't know. That's probably a message we might ignore, right? I mean, if we're really honest, we don't tend to put our confidence in things that are weak and insignificant. We don't tend to put all of our joy and all of our confidence in something that's just a, a root in dry ground. Just a, a tender little nothing. No, listen, when we go to Branson, man, we want the best tickets to the best show. The thing that's going to pack the house out. The thing that, that has all the great songs and all the old favorites and the best family comedy. We do not want to be in the corner booth at the Ozark Pancake and Waffle Pit for karaoke night. It's not how we think, is it? We don't want the weak. We don't want the insignificant. We want the best. We want the big. We want the mighty. We want the show. And yet God says, Isaiah, I want you to write this about the Messiah. He's just going to be a mustard plant. He, he's, he's just going to be something in a spiritually dry world, and people will overlook him. They rejected the tender root. People are still rejecting the tender root. But there is hope, great hope in that tender root. The choir just sang about it a moment ago. That there's hope in the darkness. There's light in the darkness. This is how Spurgeon put it. Do not say it is useless to preach down there or to send missionaries to that uncivilized country. You know, part of the reason that we give money to Lottie Moon is we really believe we're not that important. We give money to missions because we really don't think we're the only Christians on the planet. We invest in people going to the farthest, uttermost parts of the world because we really believe they deserve Jesus as much as we do. And we don't say, oh, what a waste of time. Don't send your money there. Don't send missionaries there. Man, your child, they were, they were primed to have a great job and a great career. Why would they go on the mission field? Because they're awesome. Because God grabs their hearts and he shows them something bigger than themselves. What a privilege if our children ever go to the uttermost parts of the world to tell somebody about Jesus. What a great joy. Spurgeon says, it is useless to preach down there and send missionaries to the civilized country. How do you know? Is it very dry ground? Ah, well. That is hopeful soil. Christ is a root out of dry ground. And the more there is to discourage, the more you should be encouraged. Love this part, though. Look what he says next. Is it dark? Then all is fair for a grand show of light. The light will never seem so bright as when the night is very, very dark. You in the middle of a dry time in life right now? Does your soul feel parched? Is it dark? Is there something happening in your family, something happening in your mind, something happening at work, at school? Is there something happening in your life that feels absolutely dark and hopeless? I want you to know that there is hope. Because even 700 years before Jesus was born, dark 
and dry and parched, that's where Jesus shines the best. It's where he does his best work. So if it feels dark, then please know there, there is light. There is hope. And it all is found in Jesus. We have a stable in Bethlehem. We have dry, parched ground. Everything about this sounds like a king, right? Stable animals feeding troughs, dry, parched ground. Well, what happens to Jesus after he was a little boy? Look at the next part of verse 2. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Jesus was not a teen heartthrob. I mean, he wasn't the guy that everybody went after. There was nothing about Jesus in the, the way that he talked or the way that he looked or the way that he acted or his family life or his social status or his education that would lead anybody to believe that he was going to be the king of the universe, the king of God's people. There was nothing about Jesus that would cause people to say, you know what, that boy, he's got potential. That boy right there, he's going to make something out of himself. Nothing. Now let me say it in a way that will step on our toes. There are probably no churches that would have ever hired Jesus to be their pastor or their worship leader or their children's minister or their youth minister. Because according to Isaiah, Jesus did not have the charisma and he didn't have the personality. He didn't have the bedside manner and he didn't have all the things that we focus on so much when it comes to leaders in the church and leaders in the community and leaders in our government. You know, we saw that same thing in the Old Testament when God chose King David. Samuel wrote it this way, For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, the people were going to look at Jesus and go, eh, nothing there. It's just Mary and Joseph's kid, carpenter, makes nice cabinets. That's about it. There was nothing about him that people would look at and say, yeah, this guy's going to be the king. But it wasn't just that they were unimpressed with him. It wasn't just that they were going to kind of ignore him. It was much deeper than that. Look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. The word despised here means having little or no value. We're in the middle of packing our house up. And from my perspective, there's a lot of things that shouldn't be packed up. Man, I'm ready to get rid of some stuff. I'm finding all kinds of things when I walk through the garage that do not have any value to me anymore, and I am ready to get rid of them. That's what we do, right? We, we have something that may have a little bit of value, but, but then it may start losing its value. and we, we put it in a box, or we stick it in the garage, or it goes up in the attic, or sometimes... Things that we think have little value, things that we might consider worthless, we do what? Throw them away. We just trash them. 
the Messiah was not going to be impressive. The Messiah was, was not going to be cool. He wasn't going to be successful. He wasn't going to be politically powerful. He was, in the eyes of people, going to be worthless. They were not going to esteem him. They were going to despise him. And yet he is the only one worthy. But the people saw the one who is worthy, 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 and they said, no, he is just worthless. Eventually Jesus was going to stand up and start saying this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he was going to start preaching this message of repenting and and coming to God. And a lot of people were going to listen to that message. And they were going to say, yeah, I'm going to repent and I'm going to start following Jesus. And they did. They had a really good profession of faith. But then as things got closer to the cross, the the numbers started dwindling. That, That profession started looking like just a profession and not a possession of faith. And by the time Jesus was crucified, there were you know, just hundreds instead of the many who followed before. Listen again to these things we've just read. Most did not believe his story. He had a peculiar birth in a spiritually dry world. He was not attractive, he was not impressive, he was not royal, he was despised, he was rejected, he was full of sorrow, full of grief. He was like somebody that people would hide their face from. Did you hear anything in that list that should lead you to believe that you should have come here this morning to worship that guy? There's really nothing in that picture that screams to us, Messiah and King. Wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace, mighty God, that guy can't be. There's a disconnect, there's something wrong, we we messed up, right? There's nothing about Jesus in this picture that should stir us to say, I'm here today to sing that he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But the song is about to change. Look at verses 4 and 5. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, by His wounds... We are healed. For 700 years, people did not believe the message. The message was out there in more than 300 different ways. The message was proclaimed, but people did not believe the message. And even for another 33 years, people did not believe the message. But then something happened. The manger became the carpenter shop. And the carpenter shop became the dusty roads of Jerusalem. And the dusty roads of Jerusalem became Pilate's office. And Pilate's office became the cross. And the cross became the empty tomb. And then the empty tomb was empty. (laughs) Something happened. For hundreds of years, people did not believe Isaiah's message. 
They didn't believe the shepherds. They didn't believe the wise men. They didn't believe John as he preached repentance in the wilderness. They didn't even believe the Son of God while he walked on this earth. They rejected him. Many and many and many. But then, one day, some of the many saw the cross. And some of the many saw the empty tomb. And some of the many saw the risen Christ. And this man that they thought was worthless suddenly became their greatest treasure. How? Because the Holy Spirit took the message and explained it to their hearts. They began to understand He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins, for our trespasses. Not His. He was chastened so that we would have peace. He was afflicted so that we could be forgiven. His beatings, His floggings, His ultimate murder on the cross, all of it was so that we could have hope. How? How does any of that bring hope? Imagine this afternoon that you get home and all that terrible Scrooge stuff that the preacher said in the sermon just gave you a headache. Man, you just got a headache. You might go home and take some aspirin or some ibuprofen. You might get one of them hot pad things and put it on your forehead. I don't know. If you go to the tea aisle in the store now, they got tea for everything. I'm sure there's a tea that says, drink this tea and it'll help your headache. There's things that we can do for a headache. There's nothing you can go take for the penalty of sin. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can perform to get rid of the disease of sin. Our hearts are dirty and we can't clean them ourselves. There's only one remedy. There's only one cure. Listen to these words from Isaiah one more time. By his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. Maybe you're here today and you know a lot about God. Maybe you go to church a lot. But your heart would tell you that you're not a Christian that I plead with you, consider the wounds of Christ. They are your only hope. Maybe you're here today, and if you stood before God, you know that you don't have a leg to stand on. I plead with you to consider the wounds of Christ, because the wounds of Christ are your only hope. See, in this life, we turn to so many things. We turn to the retirement plan sometimes. We turn to our accounts We turn to family and friends. Sometimes we even turn to our church membership and we say, everything I have is in this. But friend, the story of Jesus, this message that was so hard to believe for so many for so long, the the message keeps telling us this, it's only by His wounds that your heart can truly be saved and truly be healed. It's only by the wounds of Christ that you can escape the eternal terror of being separated from God forever. 
It's only by His wounds that you can really have safety and security and stability and satisfaction and peace and life and love and joy and hope. Only through Him. And you can have those things today and forever and ever. This is how Wesley put it. Mild, he lays his glory by. Born that men and women, like me and you, no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark! The herald angels are singing glory to the newborn king. This Christmas, let us not ignore the message. Let us not not believe the message. But rather, let us believe this message of the King. Let us embrace this message of the King. Let's love the King. And let's follow the King. Because Jesus is Lord Jesus, we simply ask for your help. We can sing things and listen to things. We can hear your truth proclaimed. But we can also be just like the people who didn't believe. And so Holy Spirit, would you grab our hearts, capture us. Help us see Jesus not as worthless, but help us to see him as our greatest treasure. As we grow older, help us not to look to our finances and our retirement or even our family or friends as our greatest treasure. As we're young and and teenagers, help us not to look to our car or to college or to money or to a job as our greatest treasure. As we're children even, help us not to look at the presence under the tree as our greatest treasure. But Holy Spirit, would you help us to see that Jesus is worthy that by His wounds we are healed and He should be our greatest treasure because we will never find another. Help us see that. Help us feel that. Help us know that. We ask these things in His name. Amen. Our hymn is hymn number 502. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Maybe this week something that you have trusted in was taken away. Maybe this week you're still trusting in yourself. Maybe you don't understand how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. I plead with you to come to Christ today. You cannot heal yourself. I told my kids I wasn't going to use this, but here I am and I'm getting ready to use it. I heard this this morning. It's so vivid and a little bit inappropriate, but work with me. Our sin is like a dirty diaper. That's vivid, isn't it? And only God can make it clean. Today, if your heart honestly tells you that it is not clean and right with God, I plead with you to come to Christ today. 
I'll be down at the front for just a few moments if you need to talk to someone about what it means to repent of sin, what it means to be rescued by God, what it means to receive this salvation that lasts forever, this joy, this confidence, this hope. If you're a believer and you're looking for a church home, you're there. This is your church. We'd love to have you come be a serving part of our church family. Maybe you've never publicly professed your faith in Christ. Maybe maybe you've never gone through an obedience with baptism. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with. I'll be down at the front for a few moments. If you need to do anything that I've mentioned or even something that I didn't mention. And if you don't come down to the front this morning and you're not a believer, I pray at 3 o'clock this afternoon that God will grab your heart with by His wounds you can be healed. Tim's going to lead us as we stand and sing.